Hello, this is Assigned Scientist at Bachelors, the only science podcast I know about with no cis people allowed. I'm Charles, and I'm an entomologist. And I'm Tessa, and I'm an astrobiologist. And today we have on as a guest, Emily Hunt. Emily is an astronomy PhD student from the UK, currently working in Heidelberg, Germany. She researches open clusters of stars in our galaxy with machine learning and statistics. In her spare time, she's a big fan of music and plays the guitar. Emily, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. So to begin with, we normally ask people just, how did you get interested in science? I think for me, it was, yeah, I don't think I really planned on going into science until um, my high school physics classes. And in particular, I had one really, really good physics teacher for the last two years of school that kind of took physics from being like, yeah, this is thing, a thing that's interesting. I could maybe do something ish to do with that to like oh my gosh I need to study this at university yeah she was just a really really good teacher and I think a lot of the time physics is this kind of really boring thing especially when you're younger as well but she just made it so much more interesting I think especially as well once you get able to get into the more complicated bits of physics like quantum mechanics and proper astronomy it gets actually really interesting and kind of went from there I then went to do a degree and then it was relatively quickly apparent that I was really enjoying astronomy and also didn't really want to leave university so here I am doing a PhD. (laughs) That's a mood. How did you get into astronomy from physics in general then? I think I'd always found it really cool. None of my parents have particularly scientific backgrounds but I can remember I think it was um, Venus transiting the sun in maybe 2003 or something and my parents like made a point of like showing me it happening behind a welding mask or something so that you can look at the sun properly and stuff like that and I just thought it was really cool. I think that's the first yeah that's the first memory I have of when I was about seven years old, of just being like, wow, space is cool. I think once I started doing it at university and it became really apparent of like, oh, hey, I'm in the right place and have the skills that I could go and go into this further. And I mean, it's a really cool field. So, well, the, the fascination of space is not <laughs> alien to this podcast. <laughs> Except for me, because I'm very afraid of space. Not the concept of space, though, just going to space. That's fair. That's fair. It is a pretty... It's, it's not very livable, shall we say. Well, I'm also like afraid. I've always been afraid of boats and being out on the water. I think it's a comparable like fear of being that. stranded yeah, with no yeah. resources. You know, you're, you're, you're isolated in a very physical sense. Except space is worse because yeah. you can't <laughs> breathe out there. Yeah, it's like instead of being surrounded by a massive ocean that you can float in for maybe like... 15 minutes to an hour depending on how cold it is you're surrounded by vacuum that you can survive in for like maybe 15 seconds if you know what you're doing supposedly you can stretch that out to like two or three minutes but eventually your lungs start hemorrhaging and that's not a good time yeah Mm. great anyway so putting aside (laughs) death in space our classic existential dread what are you working on now so for my phd i'm working on trying to find and also look at and analyze um open clusters of stars in the milky way so basically when stars form there you have say like i don't know a big gas cloud which we call a molecular cloud because it's cold enough that you have molecules forming and stuff that then basically collapses into stars but then often those stars 
because they will have formed so close to other stars as well. Often they will kind of collapse in as well and form these like t- really tight gr- bound groups of stars to give you an idea of how, just how much dense they are than space normally. Um, I mean, space is really, really empty. Like I think the nearest star to the sun is about three light years away. 4.3, somewhere about that. 4.3, nice. Say it's 4.3 light years from the sun to the nearest star. Whereas that kind of distance in an open cluster, you would probably have hundreds and hundreds of stars maybe if they've just formed and if it's one of the bigger ones they are so so much denser than the rest of space and then really the reason why they're cool is because all of these stars have formed from the same material and at about the same time and they're all still in the same place so we know that they formed from the same material and at the same time there's hundreds of billions of stars in the galaxy and trying to analyze them individually is really really difficult because you have to get a really big telescope and look at that one star for a really long time to work out stuff with spectroscopy which we won't go into but it's yeah it's it's difficult whereas when you can look at an open cluster because you're looking at say a few hundred or even a thousand stars at once you can learn a lot more about them from certain properties of that kind of group of stars because yeah you have lots of stars of different sizes but the same age and same chemistry and you can infer stuff from that which is really cool well there are two things that you've said that i would actually love to dig into the first is describing them as molecule clouds and it being cold enough to form molecules, which is an idea that has never been introduced to my life. And then secondarily, I would actually love to get into spectroscopy and and what the actual sort of methodology in looking at and understanding stars is. I guess like the thing why a molecular cloud is really cool is because even though space is quite empty, a lot of places in space are hot. And it's not the kind of idea of hot that we have as humans where like, I don't know, it's the middle of summer and you can feel warm air on your skin because I mean there's very very little material even in the spaces between stars in the interstellar medium in the galaxy and in the universe so when we say it's hot it's more that the molecules whatever particles that are there have a lot of energy and often that energy will have come from some energy source so in our own galaxy whenever you look at areas around existing stars you'll see that the gas around those stars has been ionized that basically means that it's hot enough at say at least a few thousand degrees celsius which is at least a few thousand degrees fahrenheit basically really really hot right (laughs) i think yeah i think at that point the conversion is is less important so in areas where there are lots of stars and things those stars emit lots and lots of radiation which heats up the gas around them and that then means that that gas is really excited moving really quickly and it's never going to condense or form into anything so then when we talk about cold molecular clouds and why they're really cool because they're kind of the progenitor of star formation is because you have yeah if you have an area where say there's not that many stars already and then maybe enough gas and enough stuff that's dense then that gas will be cold enough and it's not like the part aren't moving so quickly that they can never form and collapse into anything and so because of that then yeah those cold molecular clouds are able to condense into stars which then coincidentally will then heat up the gas around them and stop the process of star formation so it's this it's a kind of like sustainable process where the gal- where galaxies don't use up all of their material at the same time which is really nice for us i guess because the sun is inverted commas only 4.5 billion years old it's just a it's just a baby in the cradle yeah yeah whereas the oldest 
oldest stars will be like 13 billion years old, almost as old as the universe itself. Um, mm. So yeah, we formed because of this. Well, okay. So laying it out just very clearly on the table, because I know there's at least one person who listens who knows even less about chemistry than I do, and it's my dad. Love you, dad. Aww. So the basic building blocks of the universe are elements. Yes. And elements, when they come together in different conformations, can make up molecules. Yes. Are there parts of the universe where there's just like space between elements? Does that make sense? Do you mean like just space between, as in almost nothing there or? Yeah. Yeah. So I think particularly between galaxies. Yeah. If you were able to travel away from the sun compared to the solar system and compared to earth, it would seem so, so empty, but there's still probably at least a very small amount of the very simplest element in the space between stars in our own galaxy, the interstellar medium, maybe like only a few particles per say cubic foot or cubic meter or whatever but then if you go to the space between galaxies it's i mean we don't really know because it's really difficult i mean it's there's nothing there so it's really difficult for us to observe that stuff but yeah in theory that's probably even even sparser interestingly it actually kind of reminds me of the episode that we did with a guy called vic zamloot shout out to vic who studies immuno-oncology and like blasting apart tumors and the a point that we made in that episode is talking about how we tend to think of like bodies being a hundred percent cells, but there's actually a lot of stuff in bodies that's like space between things or connective tissue or that kind of stuff. And it kind of feels like the universe, we tend to think of the universe as being these like discrete identifiable blocks that we think of, but there's actually a lot of other stuff or to be more accurate, a lot of specifically non-stuff out there yeah yeah and i guess in the same way that the non-stuff in the human body is important because i mean yeah you end up having gaps between your important things because of the way that we're built that stuff is really important in the universe too if everything had to be spread out really evenly then nothing would ever be dense enough that you would be able to form stars and planets and basically we wouldn't exist because of the fact that even though the universe is incomprehensibly large because the way that physics is means that stuff is able to form really really dense areas like the earth where we have an atmosphere and ground to stand on that's the reason why we're able to exist at all which is quite cool yeah <laughs> i mean it, 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 <laughs> you're not wrong <laughs> So what is it about molecular clouds that then sets them up to like become stars? I guess it's just simply the fact that they're cold. I guess it's maybe important to mention too, especially for any chemists out there, when I say a molecular cloud, that tends to just mean just bonded hydrogen, I guess, like H2 or something. So it's, there are very, most of the oh, universe is still, yeah. Molecular orbitals? I know so little chemistry, but <laughs> yes, Cause, yes. Because we did have another guest on who's like really jazzed up about molecular orbitals. So like shout out to Emma Rose. We're getting a lot of great shout outs in this episode. <laughs> so yeah, I guess the thing is that A, like we've talked about that it's cold enough that anything can collapse in to form stars at all. And then B, I guess you have to have the ingredients of stars. So you have to have hydrogen and then a bit of helium kind of helps out too maybe, but mostly the hydrogen because the hydrogen is the very, is the very simplest element. So then when that collapses into really, really dense, we call them protostars, just literally what comes before a star, that then gets so much denser and so much hotter than the kind of 
cold, empty space around it that hydrogen is able to start fusing together into helium. Then from there, it's all history because you have a star that's able to sustain itself with nuclear power and nuclear fusion specifically, which is very different to the nuclear power that we know on Earth with nuclear fission. The sun or any star or whatever is able to live a happy life for somewhere between a few million to a few billion years. Just think, that's too long to be alive. <laughs> but I guess if you're a star, it's 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 relatively chill, figuratively. So your research. So you are focusing on open clusters. Yes. Have we talked about why open clusters are important? I guess I kind of touched on it ever so slightly. The reason why they're really cool is because you have a group of, say, a few hundred or a thousand stars that all formed at the same time and from the same material, which when you look at the galaxy normally is not something that you ever ever see. It's kind of like a massive soup of lots of different stars, of lots of different ages and with lots and lots of different histories. And so to look at stars individually is quite slow and time consuming because you have to do these really expensive measurements called spectroscopy where you have to like split the light apart coming from the star and like look at the molecules and the chemistry individually which is really difficult but I mean it's still possible but it's difficult whereas compared to open clusters because you're looking at all of the stars at the same time and you know that they formed at the same time and from the same materials it's basically like you've controlled two variables and you're then able to look at the one remaining one which is just the different masses of those stars in that one group. So when we look at spectroscopy and interpreting emission and absorption, those are like in the visible light area, right? Oh, so that's a good question. So it can be all over the place. So for instance, um, if people have heard back to September and the Venus announcement of finding phosphine, which might mean that there's life in Venus, it could also be lots of other unexplained things. So that was found with emission or absorption, one of the two in like... Yeah, it was absorption in, the, in one of the radio bands. Yeah, you can do spectroscopy in literally any kind of wavelength of light because I guess when we talk about light as well we're not just there's no real functional difference between say the radio waves or the microwaves that like your phone uses to communicate there's no real functional difference between that and the light that we see other than that just it's at a different frequency and it's something that either our eyes can or can't perceive so yeah if you're superman then you can i guess see x-rays is it yeah x-ray vision or closer to home lots of insects can like see uv yeah and they just have different eyes i guess that can just see the different stuff and yeah i guess for astronomy our different eyes is we just put a different camera on the telescope or in the case of like something really different like radio waves and you have to have these massive radio dishes but yeah you can see all of it and all of it's governed by the kind of similar processes where you'll have like certain kinds of emission and absorption from spectra that you can look at and you can then use that in information to try and work out what something that you're looking at is made of. Well, that actually kind of segues to something else I wanted to ask, which is we did an episode where we talked about a finding a couple of months ago that was like weird radio signals. And there was some excitement of like, is it aliens? And it's like, it's no, pro probably not. But an incredible revelation in that episode that I learned from Tessa is that we didn't know about Pluto until like 1930. Yeah. Which is unbelievable. And so I'm interested, more relevant to you, whether these sort of open star clusters are 
like how long we've known about them and to what extent advances in technology in use in astronomy have contributed to our awareness of them. Yeah, so that's a really interesting question. So some of the brightest open clusters, like the best example is the Pleiades. It's a really young star cluster still, and it has these really bright blue stars. And that's really, really bright, especially compared to, say, the planets. The stars in the Pleiades are comparatively still pretty bright and really noticeably blue even with the naked eye and that's something that civilizations as old as say Mayan civilization a few millennia ago I think the brightest ones have been known about for as long as recorded history but then yeah there's I think around about 2,000 open clusters that are known now in the Milky Way um, depending on who you ask and many I think at least a a good few thousand of those have only been discovered in the past 10 or 20 years. And that's because Mm. we're really in a golden age of astronomy where there is, yeah, I guess the technology and what we're capable of has just really, really caught up to what we'd like to be able to do. Because, I mean, there's a whole universe out there. There's so, so much to observe. Um, So any kind of technological improvement will always bring a lot to astronomy. And to say that a lot has been brought to astronomy in the past 10 or 20 years is kind of an understatement really um so particularly i work with satellite with data from a satellite called the gaia satellite run by the european space agency and what that's doing is it's measuring the distances and velocities and positions of as many stars in the milky way as possible so it's managing to do that for over a billion stars which is a like tremendously tremendously large data set compared to anything that we had before that's the thing that's really really driving a lot of the really big advances in astronomy especially for our galaxy at the moment because the guy satellite and telescope is just absolutely incredible and is able to do so much science i mean it's it's nice to hear that we're in a golden age for something (laughs) yes i guess then my next question because i'm obsessed with taxonomies is how Cultures have been able to see various open star clusters for thousands of years, but how has the conceptualization of star clusters changed? Do you know what I mean? So for the longest time, it's probably stuff that we didn't really understand. I mean, if you go back to, say, the 18th century, for instance, when people started to first classify a lot of things in bulk that they saw in the night sky, often that's because people were obsessed with finding comets because the people thought the comets were really, really important. And I think especially for astrology purposes, because astronomers were still just astrologers at the time for the most part. Yeah, um, people were trying to find comets all the time. But they would always get them confused by these like strange fuzzy things that we now know to be like galaxies or open clusters or like beautiful nebula. Just people's telescopes weren't good enough at the time. So they just kind of looked like strange fuzzy hazes, but they never moved. So eventually you knew it wasn't a comet, but you had to check a few times. And then you wrote it down in your catalog as like, I don't know, NGC 22804, yet another not a comet. Um, (laughs) But then now we understand these things as significantly more interesting than just not a comets. One thing I wanted to ask you about is that you mentioned a little while back that spectroscopy was expensive, which as someone who does rely on a lot of spectroscopic data for my research, albeit I'm totally theoretical, I do all my stuff on the computer, I had not thought about it in terms like that, because uh, getting that data was always someone else's problem. (laughs) So could you elaborate a little bit on, you know, what makes it expensive? Yeah, that's a good question. So we get very, very little light from stars. The reason why you can only see stars at night is because of this, because they emit so much less light than the sun. It's 
so much brighter in comparison. And because of that, every individual photon of light that you get from a star that you're trying to look at is really, really precious because they're pretty hard to come by. Whereas say like, I don't know, to observe something, if you just want to like look at it and take a picture, which we call photometry, where like you take a picture of something and you work out the brightness of the overall thing. Say that takes like, I don't know, some given amount of time. It will take the square of that amount of time to do that with spectroscopy because you're not only having to look at the object, you're having to look at every single frequency of light that's coming from that object. And so, yeah, it just takes so much longer to do. As well as that, the um, equipment that you need to do spectroscopy is really quite sophisticated, especially on stars that are much dimmer. It's why a lot of spectroscopy is only still really done with the brightest stars that we look at. I mean, I say the brightest stars to someone 50 years ago, these were the dim stars. So <laughs> in another 50 years time, like doing spectroscopy for like, I don't know, a billion stars will probably be like pipsqueak easy. But at least for now, it's really hard to do it for like a few million stars is really challenging. And I mean, that sounds like a lot. It is a lot, but still compared to say the Gaia data set where you have the photometry, which is the simpler measurements as well as like the positions and velocities and distances, you can do that for over a billion stars, which yeah, maybe just gives an idea of practically how it's just so much more time consuming to get the spectroscopic measurements. Well, speaking of technology, machine learning? Yes. <laughs> So when we're looking for new open clusters or trying to analyze existing ones, you maybe have a rough idea of where there might be some. You maybe have stuff from like, say, 10 years ago before the Gaia satellite absolutely revolutionized astronomy in the Milky Way. You'll have some like approximate positions of where you think something might be. But to then turn the data set of Gaia that's over a billion stars and to then look for, say, I don't know, clusters of, say, only a few hundred stars in that data set is really, really challenging because the scales are just absolutely ginormous and there's so much stuff to process oh gosh it's a stereotype but it, it is finding it, it is like trying to find a needle in a haystack so then there's quite a few different areas of machine learning that we use the thing that we do most prolifically is something called unsupervised machine learning so these techniques are kind of often it's also just called clustering algorithms. You basically tell a computer, okay, given these like couple of parameters that control the algorithm in some way, go off and try and find clusters in this data set for me. Depending on the timescale of how big the thing you're looking at is, it can take a long time to process this stuff. The first kind of really big important thing that we do is these clustering algorithms that you can set off on the Gaia data set or some other similar data set to try and find densely packed groups of stars in the overall stellar density of our galaxy and yeah that's a kind of really big important thing especially now because yeah a billion stars is no laughing matter you can't really easily look through that by hand even if you tried to speed it up in some ways so you really need computer techniques instead to be able to look through data sets that are that large as well as that we also use some other areas of machine learning like um, image classification so that once we have an open cluster candidate from one of these clustering algorithms we can then also use another computer algorithm to try and classify them as being an actual real candidate that's probably a real open cluster or maybe not a cluster at all, or maybe somewhere in between where we're not really sure. So basically, you have these massive set of observations that the Gaia satellite has taken, but with the machine learning, what you're hoping to do is basically automate the process of looking through all those images and you know all that photometric data and what have you and saying, oh, okay, this is probably an open cluster without actually having to physically go and look through all those images. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And to clarify slightly as well, it's not images that we get from the Gaia data. So we just have individual stars with an individual brightness. But yeah, you still see clumps of those stars and those clumps may or may not correspond to 
open clusters. Well, that's something I was about to ask, is what might signify in terms of these measurements that a group of stars is part of this open cluster? I mean, similar brightness, similar velocity through space, similar element composition? Yeah, so the velocity through space one is a really good point, because these are kind of like really tight-knit groups of stars that may or may not be gravitationally bound. If you say look at all the velocities of lots and lots of stars in an area, which Gaia is able to measure for us, and when I talk about velocities, it basically say it looks at a load of stars, leaves them alone for six months, then looks at them again and sees if they've moved ever so slightly, of which, especially stuff that's nearby, it will have moved ever so slightly in the sky, and we call that the proper motion because it's tangential velocity of stars compared to where we're observing it. Yeah, if all the stars are in, in an open cluster, then they should all have a really similar velocity because they're all in the same place moving at the same speed through space at the same time you mentioned a couple of other things too like we don't use the brightness exactly but you can use the fact that and again as i mentioned with the color magnitude diagrams um if you plot all the stars in an open cluster with their brightness against their color you'll see that they follow this really cool thin line that we call an isochrone and then another check that we can do too is to check that all the stars follow this thin line which basically means that they formed at the same time and from the same materials because if they hadn't then it wouldn't be a thin line it would be kind of a fuzzy line because everything would be at like a slightly different evolutionary stage or have some like different chemical composition that makes them look a bit different from each other and then just overall as well in the Gaia data you can statistically measure whether or not something is an over density or not so with these machine learning algorithms is it that it is essentially doing a lot of the same work that humans could do if they just had a million years to do it or are you actually able to find things that might not otherwise be accessible to you so i think you are definitely able to find new stuff and i think the most valuable thing as well and there's something that i've tried to work on quite hard too is that certainly if you set them up right and use the right techniques then you can so whenever a human was looking at things in the past you would say oh this is an open cluster or this is not an open cluster and blah 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 and you can't really go any more advanced than that whereas with the computer algorithms we can actually put really like fine-grained probabilities on whether or not something is or isn't an open cluster and that's then really really useful because it means that you've got this whole family of kind of borderline objects where you can say like oh we're kind of 80% sure that could be an open cluster for instance and yeah there's a lot of 80% objects in a data set that's as big as say a billion stars in the Gaia data set by using the algorithms you're able to kind of open up this whole other area of there being yeah so so many objects that are kind of kind of on the fence, I guess. You know, in an ideal world, what, like, m discovery, well, like, what would be your ideal case for, like, a discovery that would come out of this data? Like, what are, in your ideal world are you hoping to find? Or that you would think would be the most exciting out of the data that you're looking at? Ooh, that's a good question. So um, I guess the most exciting thing would be more open clusters that are nearby, because particularly before Gaia, people thought that we knew about all of the open clusters within about 6,000 light years, which is a lot of distance and it covers... Oh, how wide is the Milky Way in light years? I think it's about 100,000, somewhere in that ballpark. Yeah, yeah. So it's still a very small portion of the Milky Way, but it's like, it's our portion of the Milky Way. It's stuff that's nearby. And we thought that we understood the stuff nearby really well. Whereas actually there's been a lot of papers and research suggesting that we don't understand that. And there are still more hmm. open clusters 
especially smaller objects that are hidden nearby, like hidden smaller groupings of say only maybe 50 stars that are quite nearby. And it would be really, really exciting to find more of these nearby objects because anything that's nearby is much, much brighter. Open clusters that are brighter are much easier to study because all the stars are brighter and you can do more science with them, I guess. Like if you want to do some kind of follow-up stuff with spectroscopy, for instance. Yeah, I do also have kind of very like control expectations too because there are a lot of different research groups working on this and oh, I've lost count of how many times I've like been scooped so far mm. in my PhD where like other groups have found certain open clusters with their particular algorithms and so but yeah then equally we're kind of able to complement their methods too like I think a lot of people have really lacked on having the good statistics and a lot of people still just say oh we have found an open cluster or we haven't whereas we're hoping to go up over yeah go over everyone's reported stuff so far in the past few years since Gaia data started coming out and try to put probabilities on all the clusters of saying, oh, this is a like 80% cluster. This one's a 50% cluster. This one's a like 99.9% cluster. So that one's great. Look at that one more because that would be something that's really scientifically useful too. So, well, speaking of follow-up research, it sounds like a lot of what you're doing is going in and identifying points where there are very, very likely, if not definitely open star clusters, right? Yes. So, uh, so bringing it Back to my good self, because um, <laughs> my special er my area of specialization in biology is systematics and taxonomy. And a lot of the way that taxonomists justify ourselves to people and try to get people upset that like a lot of taxonomists are just dying and not being replaced by young people because we don't have any money, give us money, is that taxonomy by itself may not look like a very scientifically rigorous field because a lot of it is descriptive and taxonomic but it is a crucial foundation for a lot of other research and drawing an analogy here is there kind of a comparable thing going on like are you producing data that you hope that other people will then be able to use for other kinds of research yeah so everything that we're doing really is for other people or maybe us to use depending on how much time is left in my phd yeah all of the new stuff that we find is maybe stuff that other people could study and i think it's quite a common thing in astronomy as well that everything's kind of like a massive relay race of lots of different people with lots of different discoveries where like every single bit of research or paper kind of advances things a small amount and then maybe some other group with some other technique is able to pick things up and improve on things or change things up a bit yeah so it's kind of our our little entry into the relay race i guess nice well actually i would love to get i was hoping that you could outline sort of the exact parameters of what the milky way is because i feel like as a, a concept it's extremely familiar to people but what it actually means I can't, I cannot be alone in not having a real distinct idea. I guess for starters as well, it's important to mention too that the, even for astronomers, the Milky Way is quite a difficult thing to understand because when we look at galaxies, like say if if, the, if it wasn't a podcast and if I was talking to everyone listening at home face to face, I would get out my phone right now and Google the Andromeda galaxy. So instead you should do it for me. Um, well, actually, could we take sort of a step backwards and define what makes something? Is there sort of a taxonomic hierarchy here in the nesting dolls of different things in the like the universe is the biggest thing 
Yeah, yeah. And then... So galaxies are kind of like two rungs of the ladder down from that overall universe. The kind of... The first rung down is clusters of galaxies because, yeah, everything in astronomy just likes to be in a cluster, apparently. So the galaxies themselves are in clusters. But then the next thing down is the galaxies themselves. And these are really the kind of like the bread and butter of the universe, I guess, because it's where all the stars are. Um, it's where all the action happens within these overall big galaxies themselves like everything that isn't in a galaxy is just kind of empty space that's really really empty whereas the galaxies themselves like our own for instance there's hundreds of billions of stars teeming full of like i guess not we don't know for sure that it's teeming with life or not but we do know that it's teeming with these stars that are alive anyway and doing interesting things that we can look at emily i wish we had another hour because i would love to just (laughs) dig my little raccoon claws into what makes something alive <laughs> so one brief follow-up is there a sharp cutoff between you know say a very large star cluster and an irregular galaxy Ooh, that's a good question there kind of is but only because of the physics because um there are other kinds of star clusters like lobular clusters for instance which tend to be they're kind of like um open clusters big brothers in a way um they tend to all be much older and they're similar to open clusters in some ways that like everything has got the same age and the same chemistry but they're very very big whereas an open cluster will have say a few thousand stars at most a globular cluster will have say maybe up to even a million stars which is almost like a tiny galaxy in and of itself except it's still only a few light years across so they're tiny and very 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 dense and packed full of stars i guess when we talk about a galaxy typically it's kind of yeah it's interesting because it's a kind of fuzzy definition that it's stuff that's at least like thousands of light years across and probably has millions of stars and is at least something significant i think that would at least get you classified as a dwarf galaxy to be like a big spiral galaxy like the milky way um or the andromeda galaxy then you're talking about hundreds of billions of stars so they're like really really huge really big things the milky way itself our own galaxy is a kind of it's called a spiral galaxy because at least we we, i mean we can't see these spiral arms because we're inside the galaxy it's like being inside of a car and trying to work out what kind of car it is it's kind of difficult because you can't see the outside which is probably the easiest way to tell we know relatively well that the milky way is a spiral galaxy so it has these kind of big spiral arms where each arm has a lot of stuff in it and it's almost a bit like stuff falling into a plug hole except the plug hole is a load of dark matter and the supermassive black hole at the center of the galaxy but that's another story isn't supermassive black hole the song that plays when all the vampires are playing baseball in the first twilight movie it is it's by muse yes (laughs) yes yes (laughs) so that's my reference point Oh, the other thing that I wanted you to get to talk about, if you could tell us more about the Gaia satellite specifically. Yeah, so the Gaia satellite is, uh, it's a really, really unique telescope because whereas most telescopes kind of focus on taking one picture of something, say like the Hubble Space Telescope, for instance, you'll look at something for a few minutes until you... Everybody knows Hubble. Everybody yes, loves Hubble. Hubble is the best. We love Hubble. Yeah, it will look at a star or a galaxy or whatever some astronomer wants it to look at for, say, a few minutes in the one place. It will take a really nice picture and then move on. Whereas the difference with Gaia is that it's trying to observe over one billion stars for 
I guess, yeah, the mission recently got extended. So it will be a total time of around 10 years. And it's trying to look at every single star more than a couple of times a year. And by doing that, it's basically taking lots and lots of measurements of the really, really precise positions of those stars. And then at the same time too, it's also taking pictures of those stars so that you can work out the brightness and do cool stuff. Basically, Gaia does a lot of things, but the really cool thing that Gaia is doing with the positions is that it has this kind of really, really amazing level of precision that means that you can actually see stars moving really slowly. Basically, the Gaia satellite because it's looking at stuff so repetitively and it's such a high level of precision and accuracy, you're able to slowly see stars moving across space. And from that, you can work out their velocity tangentially relative to us. And then as well as that, you can also work out the distance too with something called the parallax. And it's yeah probably one of the oldest ways of working out the distances to things in astronomy. I think it actually, no, I think it is the oldest way. It's the first time we realized like, ooh, space is big. And basically what a parallax is, is that if you say, hold your finger out in front of your face and close one eye and then close the other, and you'll see that your finger moves slightly from left to right. And that's because when you look at it with a different eye, then relative to the background, your finger will seem like it's moving slightly from left to right. That's basically what you do whenever you measure a parallax in astronomy. Instead of like switching eyes, you say, take a measurement when the earth is on one side of the sun, then wait six months and then take another measurement. And so all the stars will have shifted ever so slightly relative to the stuff that's really, really far away. Kind of like your finger, if you're like closing one eye, then closing the other. That's called a parallax measurement. And they're the kind of maybe the most important thing that Guy is measuring, I guess, because there's no other way to get that many distances to that many stars. The smallest angles that Gaia can measure are, I think, a 180 millionth of a degree, which is absurdly small. That's the size of a golf ball when that's on the mute that's on the moon when viewed from the earth like imagine wow. me measuring an angle as small as that it's absurd and i mean the only reason why you can do that is because stars are really really bright and because the gaia satellite is really really precise and knows that it can keep looking at things and measure these really really tiny angles i feel like gaia can be underrated sometimes it's like it requires a bit of explanation but once you get there it's like whoa We like to end our episodes asking our guests to weigh in on one of some of our recurring themes. Have you chosen a question that you would like to answer? Oh, I could choose all of them, but I think the brain or robot body one is quite cool. So assuming you are on the verge of death and you have the option to either just die outright or put your physical brain inside of a robot body, do you go robot and... Is this a form of immortality? I 100% go robot. So <laughs> I think personally, I think I'm okay with death because I mean, without death, then you don't get evolution. And because some things die and because things don't want to die, you get that biology has happened over billions of years. And we've reached this point where humans exist because we've gotten really good at not dying. But I mean, we still only live for 80 years-ish at most. And death is an inevitability. And as much as I'm okay with that, I think it would also be really cool to have an opportunity to extend things. And I think even if it was like a mediocre thing, like even if it wasn't even a robot body and you could only say exist as with your consciousness in like a computer or something like that, I would still pick it in a heartbeat because I just think it would be really cool to see where humanity ends up and see where things end up. In our own lifetimes, we're only such a small piece of the puzzle of the kind of journey of 
humanity and to be able to see where we end up in say a hundred years after that or a thousand years even would be like a real privilege I think and so yeah I would love if it was a form of immortality because it would just be really cool to see what happens I think yeah well this actually occurs to me now something that hasn't come up previously of let's say you're you're in the robot body it kind of basically we all are going to die. Yes. And we all know that we're going to die, which is good and it's bad. Because on one hand, the fear of death. On the other hand, fear of not dying. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) But it's interesting to me. Basically, once you're in the robot body, do you stay around for as long as the robot body slash your brain physically keep working? Or is there a certain point when you're like, I've kind of seen enough, I'm ready to truly die now yeah i guess it's a i guess it would really depend it this reminds me so much of the plot of the netflix show the good place um, i was just thinking that yeah <laughs> and yeah it's like yeah i guess at some point there might be some point where it gets boring or where like you just especially as well if people if you've had to then watch everyone you know die for instance say that you were the only person who got the opportunity for this like maybe it would be really really difficult to keep up with it for like indefinitely but like i don't know i think at least for the first few thousand years i could probably just still be like motivated by scientific curiosity and being like wow this is so cool to get to be able to see how everything turns out but then again like i don't know maybe a hundred years later you'd have some like nuclear wasteland in the year 2200 and maybe then maybe then you would have seen enough (laughs) (laughs) yeah well yeah i mean here's the new nightmare you get robot body upgrade 20 years later your friends don't die they get better robot bodies (laughs) though i don't know I, i would be happy for them i well here's another question that maybe we should add to our list. If they made a settlement on like the moon or on Mars or something, would you volunteer to go live there? Not if it was run by Elon Musk. <laughs> well, it's Emily. This has been fantastic. And you've been a real gem. Thank you very much. It's been really fun to be here. If people want to find you online or find more about your work, where should they look? Yeah, so I guess the main place is Twitter. I'm at Emily Does Astro. Yeah, go there for tweets and fun times. I am on Twitter at Cockroach Arles. And Tessa? I am on Twitter at SpacerMase, S-P-A-C-E-R-M-A-S-E. The show is on Twitter at A-S-A-B Pod, and we have a website where we post transcripts and show notes for every episode asabpodcast.com please go to the website i can see the analytics i see that people aren't clicking the show notes there's great information there (laughs) but yeah asabpodcast.com and until next time keep on sciencing